If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts 10 is where we're going to be. And if you're new to the Bible, Acts 10 is, is going to be in the, the back portion of your Bible. You'll find Acts near the back half. Um, today, we're jumping back into our series in the book of Acts. And if you're wondering, like, what is this book all about? Well, really, the big idea of the book of Acts is that when Jesus died and rose again, he didn't go on eternal vacation. He's not chilling out in some hammock somewhere, taking a nap, just oblivious to what's happening on the planet. But the story of Acts is the story of Jesus continued. It's the story of what Jesus continues to do in this world and in through the church. And it's not just the story of what Jesus continues to do, but it really is the story of Jesus pushing his mission forward in the middle of a lot of opposition and persecution and suffering. So the whole story of Acts is just the story of watching the mission of God unfold and expand and advance in and through the world through the church. So that, that's what we're looking at. And today, what the, the big question that we're going to be answering and the, the big question that I want you to think about with me is, is the mission of God wide or narrow? Is the mission of God wide or narrow? And while we're thinking about that, uh, let me just tell you one of the most frustrating realities that, that actually is true in every part of the world. And that's just this reality that everything in human existence always drifts from order to chaos. Have you noticed that? Nothing ever drifts naturally from chaos into order. Everything naturally drifts from order into chaos. This is true of your finances. This is true of your, your place of residence. This is true of your body. This is true of, of just everything in your life. Everything drifts from order into chaos. Like, like you don't eat pizza and not go to the gym for two years and then wake up with a six-pack. It just doesn't happen that way. I wish it did. I keep trying, but it doesn't happen that way. There, there's a level of intentionality that requires to, to not allow our body to drift from from order into chaos. This is true of your finances. You don't just like wake up magically and then you're in financial health and you've saved for retirement. It, it, it takes a lot of intentionality. Everything in this world always drifts from order into chaos. And another frustrating reality that's very similar to that is not a reality external of us. It's not a reality about the world we live in, but it's a reality about the human heart. And here's this reality. Every human heart naturally drifts away from diversity and towards homogeny. Every human heart naturally is going to drift away from diversity and towards sameness and homogeny and people that are just like us. Because can we be honest, diversity is hard work. It's hard work to engage people that are not like you. It's hard work to engage people that don't think the way you think or don't see the way that you see the world. And so left to myself, naturally what's going to happen is I will drift into homogeny. I will surround myself with 30-something-year-old white dudes that are Christians that share the same theological and philosophical and political viewpoints that I share. And those guys are never going to misunderstand me. And those guys were always going to be on the same page. And building relationships with those guys is going to be pretty easy because I have an aversion to what is hard and I naturally drift towards homogeny. This is something that we actually see, not just in the Bible, but it's something that we see in the book of Acts in particular. In the first nine chapters of the book of Acts, this reality that the church always drifts towards homogeny and away from diversity is 
evident and seen in the first nine chapters. So in chapter one, Jesus had given the church the great commission to take the gospel into all the world. And what we see happen is really, really crazy and ridiculous. In chapter one, there's 120 people that are followers of Jesus. And by the time we get to Acts chapter nine, maybe five or six years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it's estimated that there's anywhere between 15 to 20,000 people that were followers of Jesus. I mean, this is amazing. This is crazy. This is in the middle of Christianity being illegal. This is the the most oppressive, powerful government on the planet at the time, opposing Christianity, the Roman government, and yet the church had seen unprecedented growth, unbelievable missional advancement. But there was one major problem with all of this. When we get to Acts chapter 9, the church was entirely homogenous. It was entirely uh, the Jewish people that had become Christians. There were no people that were not Jewish. There were no people that were, that were different than in the early church at this time. So here's what this means. What this means is that the, the early church had only actually done about 50% of what Jesus told them to do. Jesus told them, he said, I want you to take the gospel not just to Jerusalem, but into Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the early church had killed it at taking the gospel to the Jewish people. But up to this point, no Gentiles had heard or known about the person and work of Jesus. If you're confused, like what is a Gentile? A Gentile is someone who is a non-Jew. It's anyone who is not Jewish. So many, if not most of the people in this room would be considered Gentiles. Now, now why was this? Why was the church only Jewish five, six years into this mission? Why was the church only surrounded by and, and included with Jewish people? Well, it wasn't because they lacked the opportunity to take the gospel to the Gentile world. It wasn't because they didn't have the resources or they didn't have the know-how. The early church could have done this pretty easily, but there was something that kept them from doing this, and here's what it was. There was major hatred and animosity and racial barriers between the Jewish people and the Gentile people. If you're sitting there thinking like, I wonder if God actually knows the, the, the tense racism that we're experiencing in our culture right now. I wonder if God can relate to that. Like, absolutely he can because what we see happening in the first century was off the charts crazy. The amount of animosity and hatred that the Jews had for the Gentiles was, was just almost unbelievable. So to kind of paint this picture for you of all these barriers, uh, I want to just unpack and, and give you some input on, on the, the hatred and animosity that existed. Uh, within the first century between Jews and Gentiles, there were social barriers. In fact, there's a guy named Alfred Edersheim. He wrote a, a great book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. He was a Jewish man that eventually converted to Christianity. And here's what he says. He says, in the first century... All familiar social interaction between Jew and Gentile was forbidden. And no pious Jew would ever sit down at the table of a Gentile. Right? They wouldn't associate with, they wouldn't talk to, they wouldn't enter each other's houses. They wouldn't uh, greet each other if they were passing on the road together. There was no interaction whatsoever. In fact, the hatred was so intense socially that if a, a Jewish young man were to marry a Gentile girl the family of that Jewish man would actually hold his funeral and then completely cut him off from the family altogether. 
This is crazy amounts of, of barriers and hatred between these two groups. And then there wasn't just social barriers and language barriers and cultural barriers, but there were religious barriers and like physically, literally religious barriers. So think with me about the temple. The temple was the place where the presence of God would come to dwell, the place where God would bring his presence in a, in a unique and special way. If you wanted to encounter the God of the Bible, where would you go? You'd go to the temple because that's where the presence of God was. But what the Jewish people had done is that they had misunderstood the heart of God and and assumed that God chose them to be a special people because he actually hates all of these other nations and he wants nothing to do with these other people groups rather than realizing that God had chosen the people of Israel so that they might be a blessing to the nations so that all the people in all parts of the world would flock to God because of these people. So they built physical barriers around the temple to keep certain people away from the presence of God. Uh, Imagine you have the temple in the middle, and then you have these outer gates. The outermost gate, the, the, the furthest gate from the temple, was called the gate of the Gentiles. If you're a God fearing Gentile that converted to Judaism, you could enter into this gate. And then there is another gate, this, the inner court, and this was reserved, this was reserved rather for Jewish women. So if you're a ceremonially clean Jewish woman and you feared the Lord, then you could go past the Gentile gate into the inner court reserved for women. And then there was the third gate, which was the innermost court. This is like the closest place to the temple that you could get. And this was reserved, reserved for, guess who, Jewish men. So if you're a ceremonially clean Jewish man, you could enter into the the innermost gate where the presence of God was. So even in the temple structure, what the people of God were communicating in the first century was, hey, if you don't look like us and think like us and talk like us and, and share our gender, and if you don't see the world the way we see, and if you don't have our culture and our race and ethnicity, then don't even try to get too close to God because he doesn't want really anything to do with you. We are the special favorite people of God. In fact, a few years later, or a few years ago, some archaeologists found an inscription that was on that outer gate wall, and here's what the inscription said. Whoever is captured past this point will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. So like, hey, you can come into this outer gate, but if you try to pass through here, if you are a Gentile and you try to go further, then you're only going to have yourself to blame for your death. If you're a woman and you try to get too close to God, then you're only going to have yourself to blame for your subsequent death. And then to top it all off, every morning, Jewish men in the first century had this liturgical prayer that they would pray. They would wake up and they would pray this prayer. And here's how the prayer went. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So, Think about this with me. Like, it's important to realize this is the context that God is working with inside of the church in the first century. And this was not just what the Jewish people thought in the first century, this was the way that the church was thinking and viewing people in the first century. 
So what was happening is that the church was, was essentially creating these barriers between all of these people that God had a heart for. And they were basically saying that God wants nothing to do with those people. Those people have outsinned his grace. Those people are just too far. We don't even need to bother with it. Let's just take the gospel to people that are just like us. Because the heart of every human always drifts towards homogeny and away from diversity. So here's what I want you to see. Something happens in Acts 10 where God will take the early church and this mindset and this mentality and he's going to flip it on its head and for the very first time, the church is going to cross cultural lines that it never had crossed. For the first time, the church is going to go to people that had, it had never gone to. It's going to engage cultures that it had never engaged. And I want to show you what happens. So if you're with me, Acts chapter 10, look at verse 1. And this is a huge section of scripture. I want to read a big portion of it to you so that you can get the story. Chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, Caesarea is uh, kind of the, the Roman seat of the government. The, the capital place for the Roman government in Judea. So this is like as, as Gentile as you can get. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. What you're supposed to read there is there was a Gentile man in a very Gentile city that the Jews wanted nothing to do with, right? Verse two, this man was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. I just want to pause there for a minute. This man was a Roman Gentile. He had rejected polytheism, worshiping all these gods, and he had started to become a seeker of the one true God, right? He wasn't yet a Christian, but he was seeking the one true God. Verse three, and about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come and say to him, Cornelius, And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Don't you love how detailed God is on this? I love it. He's like, all right, so there's a guy named Simon, but he's staying with another Simon, so it's not that Simon. Here's the Simon you want to go find, all right? And then verse, verse seven, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his servants, uh, called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Joppa is about 31 miles away from Caesarea. So this is like traveling from Norman to Edmund, right? Now look at verse nine. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, this is the apostle Peter, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, which sometimes happens when you get really hungry, right? So he falls into a trance, verse 11, and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Verse 12, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Now, let's just pause here for a minute. Uh, in Jewish culture, like there are certain animals that you can eat and there are certain animals that are unclean that you should never touch, that you should never engage whatsoever. So in this sheet, there are clean and unclean animals. Verse 13, and there came a voice to him, 
rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, this is like typical the apostle Peter, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So, so Jesus is like, hey, Peter, I want you to do something. And Peter's like, no way, I'm too holy for that. It's like, you just argued with Jesus about something he asked you to do based on you like being too holy. Probably not a great line of reasoning there. Uh, verse 15, and, and a voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. I love Peter. Like he argues with Jesus, not once, but three times. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna do that. Well, no, I, I really want you to do, no, I'm not gonna do that. No, I'm serious. I want, like three times this happens. And let me just say, before we read the rest of the story, this has nothing to do with food. This has nothing to do with what you can eat and what you can't eat. That what is being communicated here is God is coming to Peter, this man that he had specifically called to take the gospel to all these different people and different cultures and different places. And Peter refused to do it because in his mind, there are some people that were clean and there were some people that were unclean. There are some people that it's acceptable to take the gospel to. There are some people that it's okay to engage and have a relationship with. But there are other people that are just off limits, that was taboo, that you don't talk to, that don't, don't even deserve the grace of God. And God was showing up to Peter and he's saying, Peter, stop calling people unclean. These people that I've created, I'm the one that's calling them clean. Don't do that anymore. This is about people not about food. Verse 17, look at what happens. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what that vision that he had seen might mean, he's trying to figure it out. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you, Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. This is just an amazing work of God happening. Verse 21, and Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he arose and went with them and some of the brothers from Joppa and accompanied them. So now he travels back to where Cornelius is. Verse 24, and on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and he had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. So Cornelius is just kind of this confused man. He's like, I saw an angel and, and, and I know that you're you know, supposed to come and tell me something, so I better just worship you. He, he's kind of confused. And Peter responds, verse 26, saying, stand up, I too am a man. Don't worship me. Verse 27, and as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Now what Peter's about to say is Peter's like, Hey guys, how you doing? To this room filled, of Gent filled with Gentiles. Listen to what he says, verse 28. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. 
but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Like, imagine if I just, like, walked into a room filled with people that traditionally the church has said are really sinful and really broken. I was like, hey, guys, legally I shouldn't even be here, shouldn't even be talking to you, but God's told me I shouldn't call you unclean people. Like, wow, good to meet you too. Thanks for coming all this way, right? You're obviously really stoked to be here. Verse 29, so when I was sent for, when I, was sent for I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. What happens next, I'm not going to read it, but what happens next is that Cornelius begins to share the stories. Like the other day I was praying and then I saw a vision of an angel and, and I was supposed to sin for you. And, and, then, and then all of a sudden Peter realizes like, okay, sovereignly God is doing something. And what happens is Peter opens up his mouth. He begins to preach the good news of who Jesus is, specifically talking about the peace that Jesus came to bring the enemies of God. And as Peter is talking about the peace that Jesus brings, and he's talking about Jesus being Lord, and he's talking about Jesus forgiving anyone's sin who comes to him, all of a sudden we read this happening in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And believers from, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So here's what happens in this story. What happens in the story is that everything God did in Acts 2 at Pentecost for the Jewish people, God does again in Acts chapter 10, but this time for the Gentiles. And, and, and so just a few things that I want you to see coming out of this. When you ask the question, is the mission of God narrow or wide? What's happening here is that you and I are getting a glimpse into the heart of God, realizing that the mission of God is so much wider than what we even realize. And our natural tendency is going to narrow that mission and only take the good news of Jesus to certain people, people that are like us and people that think like us and people that live and function like us. And we're going to avoid other people. And the, the mission of God is so much wider and broader than that, that this is not the story of Peter sitting around having his heart burdened for all of these other people. He's not burdened for all of these other, other nations. This is the story of God working in sovereign, crazy, ridiculous ways to get Peter and Cornelius in the same room so that all of these people that had been historically rejected and hated by the people of God would for the first time get to hear the good news of who Jesus was and what he came to do for them. This is the story of, of a, a wide-angle view of the mission of God. And then in addition to that, what we see happening in this story is, is this other reality that Christianity is the most inclusive thing on the planet, but it's also the most exclusive thing on the planet. So if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're, you're wondering, like, how can Christianity be both inclusive and exclusive at the same time? Let me just explain it to you like this. Christianity is the most inclusive thing on the planet in the sense that you don't have to be a certain culture 
You don't have to be a certain ethnicity. You don't have to come from a certain socioeconomic status. You don't have to grow up a certain way or in a certain religion. You don't have to, to achieve a certain level of morality for God to accept you. That literally the offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness from God is for every single person on the planet regardless of race or ethnicity or culture, regardless of sin struggles, regardless of who you are or where you can, like anyone on the planet, the offer on the table for them is the grace and the mercy and the love of God. What that also means is that there's no sin that you walked in with, there's no amount of shame or guilt, there's no amount of past stuff that you have done for the grace and mercy of God to not come in and crash into your heart. If you're in the room and you're thinking, man, I just don't belong here. I don't belong with these people. I don't believe these things. I could never do enough to fit into this. Like that's not the way Christianity works. There's no sin that you've committed that is too big for the mercy and grace of God to address and to forgive and to reconcile. It's the most inclusive thing on the planet. It's literally for every single human on the planet, the grace and mercy of God is available. And yet, Christianity is also the most exclusive thing on the planet because that grace and that mercy and the forgiveness of God only comes through the person and work of Jesus. He's the door. You can't get into Christianity except through him. It's open to everybody, but what happens is you actually have to humble yourself and admit that you are not the God of your life, that that you are not the one that gets to call balls and strikes, that you're not the one that gets to run things and, and say what's right and say what's wrong, that actually God is the God, and you come to him and humble yourself and receive the mercy, grace, and forgiveness that Jesus is offering you. Peter says it this way in verse 42. He says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, everyone inclusive who believes in him, exclusive, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So if you're in the room and you're wondering, like, is Jesus for me? Is Christianity for me? The story here is there are no people that are too far gone. There are no people that are too far uh, away from the reach of God's grace. There are no people that, that have just sinned so much that God can't lavish his mercy on. This is the offer for every person that comes to Jesus. It's a beautiful, beautiful reality. And here's another thing that I want you to see coming out of the story that Acts 10 opens you and I up to the possibility that we are actually the ones stiff-arming the mission of God, advancing in different parts of our city and to different people. This actually opens up the possibility for us as we read this story that maybe you and I are actually not participating in the mission of God, but stiff-arming the mission of God from advancing in our world and different parts of our city. What do I mean by that? Well, think about Peter with me for just a second. Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was hand-selected by Jesus, right, to be one of the original 12 disciples who eventually became the 12 apostles. Peter was arguably the most prominent leader in the early church. Peter would just 
preach the gospel, preach the good news of, of what God has done in his life, death, and resurrection, and thousands of people would come to know Jesus. Like we see this multiple times. He'd just open up his mouth. Thousands of people would come to know Jesus. Peter would, at one point, we read in the, the book of Acts, that he would walk past people who were sick, and his shadow would heal those people, right? The, the Lord would use his shadow to heal those people. Like, maybe Peter is killing it, right? Maybe Peter's doing some stuff right. He opens his mouth. Thousands of people come to know Jesus. He walks past sick people. They get healed. Crazy stuff. God is at work in this man's life. In fact, I don't have time to show you, but at the very end of Acts chapter 9, the apostle Peter walks up to a man who had been bedridden for eight years, never been able to walk for eight years, and Peter says, rise and walk. Jesus heals you. And the dude just like packs up his stuff, gets up and walks unbelievable. And then right after that story, Peter goes into this this godly woman's house named Tabitha, who also was named Dorcas. I think she should probably stick with Tabitha on that one, right? He, He goes into Tabitha's house, and she had passed away, this godly woman. She had passed away. So he kneels down before her, and he prays. And as he's praying, God raises Tabitha from the dead. So just think about Peter for just a second. Is Peter killing it at the mission of God? Maybe so. Like he's probably doing some stuff right. Maybe you're doing some cool stuff, but I just don't know if you've ever raised people from the dead or had your shadow heal people or seen thousands of people come to know. I mean, Peter is killing it for the mission of God, or is he? Because actually what we see happen in this story is not only is God mercifully at work in the life of Peter, but Peter is entrenched in hostility and racism towards other people. Peter is unwilling to take the gospel to a whole subset of the population in the first century. Peter is unwilling to even consider the fact that these people might not be unclean, that these people might be worthy of the grace and mercy of God. Peter is, he even refuses to obey Jesus three times when Jesus tells him to do something. And so what I love about this story is that it just, it's easy to read it and realize his blind spots, but, but, but we could actually have this story told of us and we wouldn't be able to see the blind spots the way that everybody else could. How are you contributing, not to the mission of God advancing, but how are you contributing to barriers being built with people in our city? Are there people in our city that you just want nothing to do with, that you've written off, that you've, that you've counted as just too far gone? Are there people that you just won't engage, that you won't draw close to, that you won't share the good news of Jesus with because of who they are? This story is about God loving Peter as he is, but also God loving Peter enough to change him from the inside out. In fact, I love the words of John Stott. He says, the principal subject of this chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius as the conversion of Peter. This isn't just about God's heart for those people over there. This is about God's heart for changing Peter, to not view those people a certain way. This is an unbelievable story. And then the last thing I want you to see is that this wide-angle view, this incredibly inclusive view of the mission of God open to all people in all places with different cultures and different backgrounds. This is a lifelong fight, but we know how the story ends. So for us, if you're thinking like, man, I, I want to not view people a certain way. I want to engage them with the gospel. This is a lifelong fight, but we know how the story ends. 
so crazy for me reading the story again. I thought to myself, man, you would expect the early church just to freak out in celebration at the, the grace and power of God saving all of these people. You would just expect them to celebrate like, man, God saved all these Gentiles, these people that we had written off, these people that we thought weren't worthy of the gospel. God has saved all of these people. How amazing is that? But instead, that's not the response that the church has. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So they heard about the Gentiles receiving the word of God, verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? So what's the response of the early church? God saves all these people. They receive the word of God. The church's response, can God do that? Should God do that? Wait, you ate with who now? You went into what person's house and you talked to what? You engaged what type of person? How dare you do that? How dare you think that those people were worthy of your time and your affection and your attention? Like This is the response of the early church. And then Peter begins to share the story with them. And, and, and here's hope for the church. Comes in verse 17. Peter says, If then God gave them the same gift to them as he gave to us, the Holy Spirit, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So it takes the church a little bit, but eventually the church celebrates this wide inclusive view of the mission of God that no one is outside of the limits of God's reach. And you would actually even think that Peter would never be the same after this. You'd think that Peter would always have been changed, that Peter would always uh, realize that there's, there's people out there that God has a heart for. There are people out there that I should be engaging. But unfortunately, we get to Galatians chapter two, and what we read about Peter is that Peter slides right back into his racism. He slides right back into his hostility. He slides right back into pulling away from the Gentile people, and the apostle Paul has to openly, publicly rebuke Peter for his racism. So even after amazing stuff, like maybe you've heard a sermon and you're like, yeah, there are people out there that, that need the gospel and you want to go, and, and but then you do it. And after doing it for a little bit, you realize how hard it is and you drift back into homogeny and you avoid this wide angle, inclusive view of the mission of God. There's hope though, because this is how the story ends. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this, this is like, the end of the age, this is the, what Jesus will fully and finally one day do. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. This is the end of the story. God will win. His mission will advance. And despite the church sometimes kind of blubbering about with the mission, God will change and grow us so that this will be the end result. So here's what I want to encourage you to do for you, for me. When you think about the mission of God advancing in our city, stop building friendships solely based on comfort, solely based on what is easy, 
and start building friendships and relationships based on mission. Start building relationships with people that everyone else has written off. Who is that for you? Who is that corporately for the church that people have just said, these people are too far gone? Who is that in your heart that you you look at and you just say, those people, I I do not want to engage those people. I don't want those people to, to, to be in my life or I don't want to be in their life. That right there is the invitation of God to engage those people because his love is burning for them. His heart is desiring that all would come to him. So if you're here to close this out, you're not a Christian, is this for me? Have I sinned too much? Am I just too shameful and dirty for God? No, he has done the work. He came for you. He gave his life for you on a cross and rose from the dead. You are not too sinful. You are not too far gone. You have not out his reach. Come to Jesus today. He's inviting you to himself. Repent of trying to be the God of your life and come to him and he will receive you.